0: From the WNET Group in New York, hi, I'm Tom Stewart, and this is WNET Up Next, where we take you behind the scenes for a look at what's happening in the world of public media and help you get to know the people who create our content. Our guest today is author and actor Stephen McGann, who has for over 10 years starred as Dr. Patrick Turner on the acclaimed dramatic series Call the Midwife, created by his wife, Heidi Thomas. Stephen, welcome to WNET Up Next.
1: It's lovely to get the chance to speak to people stateside. It's very rare. We're there with our noses down making a British show, which goes all over the world, and it's nice to have a more direct contact with people.
0: Well, we're thrilled to have you with us. Now, here in the States, coming up on March 20th, will be the premiere of the 11th season of Call the Midwife, and things began with the memoirs of a British midwife called Jennifer Worth.
1: There was a really tender story, actually. It was Jennifer Worth. The basic story of Call the Midwife is um, there's a fantastic midwife called Terry Coates who went and did a master's degree in midwifery and her dissertation was on... Basically, why were midwives written out of literature through history, through television and films through history? Why was birth such a rapid thing? When I would say sort of somebody in full makeup, a lady panting for a few minutes in full makeup and then a baby magically appears who looks Mm -hmm. maybe three months old. And this enraged Terry. And she wrote a dissertation and then wrote in the Midwifery magazine in Britain. Why don't we make the change? All midwives are sick of seeing their profession, their lives not represented, the birthroom. So why don't we do something about it? Send me your ideas, your script. She sent out a clarion call. And a woman wrote back to her called Jennifer Worth and said, mm-hmm. actually, I'm going to accept your challenge. I'm going to write about my experiences of 1950s East End London, where I worked as a midwife. And it was Terry and Jennifer who then put into work the original books, which then became the absolute smash international bestseller, Call the Midwife. How our series came around is, as people out there might or might not know, I'm married to the woman who creates the show. And that is a whole story. But there she is. She gets lots of scripts and she gets a book to read. And it's this Mm -hmm. book. And... We've never worked together for 25 years since the very first time we met. And I do my thing and she does hers, and we read in bed like lots of married couples, you know? And she's reading this book. And I'm looking at her, thinking, you really like this one. You didn't think you would. And she she's looking and she looked, she's gasping every now and again. And she says, gosh, I think I might be able to do something with this. Mm-hmm. 10, 11 years later, yes, she could. And it was her job to adapt it for television. And she then formed a great collaboration with Jennifer Worth, which was tragic because Jennifer Worth was then diagnosed with cancer. Unbeknownst to both of them, when they started to work on ideas for the series of the book, Jennifer would never see the series. She died only a few weeks before the first episode was due to go out. So she never saw it, but they became friends. And Heidi saw it till very near the end. I think Heidi sees it as really carrying that torch that Jennifer the shone a light on and the east end of that time. And we, we try to carry that on in what we do. It's a different job to any other job I've ever done.
0: Every week we see, how did this begin, crawling across the screen, And I believe it's the voice of Vanessa Redgrave as the voice of Jenny Lee.
1: We are nothing without others. In their presence, we unfold. A smile exchanged, a confidence shared, a joining of forces as we make our way. These are the things that unite us and enable us to thrive.
0: You've recently, in the last year or so, completed a book on Call the Midwife. It's called A Labor of Love, Celebrating 10 Years of Life,
1: Love and Laughter. It was the most wonderful labor of love. It began in the middle of COVID. It came up to 10 years of our program. But it happened in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. Now, as a medical drama, we knew that the real midwives, the real medics out there, were right on the front line. And our job, really, was to give people something to hope for, something to watch. Because as you know with our program, it's about community and compassion, and it's about medicine. It's about care in the most basic sense, and its widest sense. It's not just about babies and children. This is a backdrop to the book, because after we did our first series, we we were delayed and we did something in our series number 10 was recorded in the winter, which is very unusual for us. It was freezing cold in the studios because we couldn't use real heaters because the heaters could spread viruses apparently. So we had to be really cold like in the 50s and 60s in the East End. But in the middle of this, we had a break and we tried to catch up our series. So we only had six to eight weeks. That's when the producer came to me and said, look, it's our 10th anniversary this year. Would you be interested in, in writing looking back over all the years to write an anniversary book i'd written a book before called dr turner's casebook Mm -hmm. for this because of my science and medical interests and they said because you've done this before would you be interested what would it look like steve have you got any ideas and i said well yeah i think we should bring everybody back If we could, because if we're going to do a proper anniversary book, it has to have everybody's voices in not only the cast, past and present, but also people who work behind the scenes. And so in the end, this book, A Labour of Love is about my reminiscences because I was there in what each year and season brought reminding everyone of the stories. But my favourite part of it is everybody came, everybody came back. It's like a huge reunion. We managed to get all the old friends. We got, you know, Miranda Hart, who plays Chummy. We got Emerald Fennell, Oscar winner Fennell, who who played it. You know, and all the different ages. And they came back and they contributed to this thing. And that's what, for me, makes it so beautiful. And you know the great thing, Tom, is even when I put this thing together, there are still surprises in there for me. One of the ones which always makes me smile is... Eve Stewart, the designer, said, you know when we made those streets, she said, we couldn't film in Poplar anymore because Poplar from the 50s and 60s in London doesn't exist anymore. But she said, I needed to recreate those streets on the set. So she said, I actually went to a house in the east end of London and said, can I make a mould of your house? They said, what? She said, I'd like to do a mould of all of the bricks and transform that mould into real East End streets. So the false streets that you see are actually, if you like, moulded from the original bricks of the East End. People said to us during the lockdown, they said, well, you've got the first thing you have to do is the Christmas special. Said, if nothing else, do you guys have to? Because people are telling us in the TV company, you know, BBC, they said, look, people are saying, well, they're our family at Christmas. This is Nurse Crane. This is, you know, these are the midwives we know, and we know these people. Mm. Of course they exist, it's just like you say, and they said, well, we have to know that we know, we have to know they're okay. If they're okay, then we can all, we can all be okay too, you know? And, but the responsibility of that was really keenly felt, and it, it is in our program all the time. We love our program, but we feel the responsibility to be that for people. Now, you've basically said that the
0: world of Poplar, of Call the Midwife, is no longer. What is Poplar
1: like? Poplar nowadays, all the old Victorian stuff or the stuff from that era, in fact, with the exception of, you love this, but the original nun's house, the original Nunnata's house, known as St. Freedswijk's originally, okay. is still there. London is a patchwork now of occasional Victoriana and Edwardiana and early 20th century with mostly the modern. So Poplar itself doesn't really film because it doesn't look like Poplar. However, what we do is we're very lucky because we go over the river in Kent where there are the outside shots. We film that in a place called Chatham in a museum, a real museum where people can go and visit. And in fact, Call the Midwife fans, they have a visit the UK from America. You can actually go and tour places. I was we thinking it. there
0: probably is a yeah. Call the Midwife tour.
1: There really seriously is. You can go to walk around where we've done some of our most iconic scenes there. And we do that, and the rest of the interiors we do in a studio somewhere completely different. But one of my favorite things, and if you remember this most recent Christmas special, is we get to go back to the genuine East End when we go to the church. Because St Anne's Church is in a place called Limehouse, which is just next to Poplar. And when we film our great church scenes, That's genuinely in the East End. We absolutely adore to go back there because it feels like we're going back to our spiritual home. And so when Cyril and Lucille got married, when Sheila and I got married, when people were buried, like any community, of course, it hatches, matches and dispatches. So the churches becomes this central location for all the most significant parts of our story. We've always gone back to the genuine East End to film it. And we were really pleased about that.
0: What do you think is the single thing that you're most proud of about Call the Midwife?
1: I, in general, I'm incredibly proud of its bravery. It's a fist in a velvet glove. It goes back to a time that seems set in Aspic. It. But it's always moved forward. Every year it's moved a year forward. And it's gone through one of the most tumultuous periods. But where I'm most proud of it is it's a program that reminds people that compassion and community matter and when people cry at our program which they frequently do I've been asked about that we show them something in themselves which is the urge to reach out and care for other people and if that wasn't in our audience it wouldn't make people cry they wouldn't still be watching our program the catharsis of feeling in common with other people is still in people and it drives people or else they wouldn't come back and they wouldn't find themselves. Sometimes they write to us and say, look, I'm not a very emotional person. What are you doing to me? Why am I, why am I crying? And the answer is it's you. It's you. You care. You didn't know you care. You're doing yourself a disservice. You care. All we're doing is showing you something and sharing it with you because we care. And, by, and those fables of a time where health and life and community might be done differently, that might be a different way, is very powerful, I think. That's a general, specifically what I'm most proud of. It has to be the, the series personally where we covered the thalidomide scandal because it took energy and expertise technical expertise, emotional expertise, and dramatic skill on so many different levels. And it took courage and the involvement of the real thalidomide injured in Great Britain, working in collaboration with us to tell a story that had already begun to be forgotten in the world, but mm-hmm. hundreds of people still live with its effects. And I think, if we achieve nothing else? At the end of our series in that same year, a monument went up in Cardiff, in Wales, and it was to the people who suffered from thalidomide. There had never been a monument to to those injured by thalidomide before. And the lady who organized it, who suffers from thalidomide herself, turned to us and said, if it hadn't have been for your series, this would never have been given the light again and those people still alive. And if nothing else, the things we did in that series, the way in which we represented and there are stories we still have and the friendships we still have in that community. I am unbearably proud of, really unbearably so.
0: That is really wonderful. All who watch Call the Midwife are always very fascinated by the incredibly realistic and very graphic depictions of childbirth. What makes that realism possible? My other question on this line is, is there a casting director for newborns?
1: Yes. Well, first one first, what makes it possible? I brought up earlier, chatting to you, a woman called Terry Coates. One of the greatest keys to our technical success in the achievement of childbirth on screen was the involvement of a genuine nurse midwife Mm -hmm. who had been with the story from the very, very beginning and has been a principal advisor with us. The research is good, but it took solving certain screen problems, if you imagine what it must be like to bring childbirth into a room before what they call the nine o'clock watershed. Because after nine o'clock, I don't know about the States, but after nine o'clock in the UK, you can be more graphic, you can say more swear words, you can show more Mm. blood. Before 9pm, there are very, very strict rules. If the kids are still around, watching TV, about how much blood you can show. The rules are much more strict. So we had a lot of constraints there when we began to come together in the beginning to say, how are we gonna film, actually film, birth? Which, let's be honest, takes place at what we might euphemistically call the business end of a woman's body, not something that is normal Sunday night fair for yes. drama. So there were there are ways then we had the camera angles, the things we did. few things we solved, we solved with Terry. Terry knew exactly, for instance, if you take the women, Terry had birthed so many babies. When we first started to rehearse in the first series, and it's all in my book, she said to the the first actresses, demographically, people used to give birth much, much younger in Great Britain, probably in the States too. A lot of women who are young actresses of 22 and three, I have never known childbirth now. We're back in my mum's day, A woman might have three or four children by the time she's 24 or 25. Mm. Things have changed from that time. And so a lot of these young women coming to us had never experienced childbirth. And when Terry made them make some of these real noises, which you don't normally hear in movies, these noises were guttural. They were animal-like. And I remember being in rehearsals in those first days (laughs) and the the wide-eyed actresses looking at Terry, stricken and thinking, I don't really make that noise do i she said i'm sorry my dear but you do and so these very deep grunting noises and she would rehearse these things with them then the babies babies are too often found how do you find them there is an agency for babies in the no. very very beginning really? we we um Here's the secret to how we do it. The babies look so young because some of these babies are only 10 days old, but getting a 10 day old baby is a tricky thing to do. You have to be organized about that and you have to plan. And in our first series, we put out a a call. I think we put up notices in hospitals that said, look, if you were interested, you know, and we got a few people, we managed to get our babies for the first series. When the mums saw the first series, Let's just say we've had no trouble since in finding babies and the willing mums. But what we do is we, we, we get pregnant women early in stage in pregnancy interested in coming on so we can plan. And we have, shall we say, right babies ready at the right size and age for when we need to use them later on. And it's all about timing. And also, we have different conditions that we need to show. But the best thing, one of the great secrets is, there are very, very strict rules about how you use babies. So quite rightly, a baby on set, everything stops for a baby on set. If it's too cold, the baby isn't there. If it's too hot, the baby isn't there. The baby gets the baby is the only star on set. Gets The newborn gets everything they need and the mum is close by. But to get those babies that young, to get them in, you need the mothers there. You need them already, but you can only use them for 20 minutes. Now, if you know anything about screen, using a baby for 20 minutes, that screen time is no time at all. And so what we usually do is have identical twins. So if you get identical twins, they look the same and you can get 40 minutes essential screen work. What happens is if baby comes on for a minute, then they have to go and have a big rest, a big break. So what we tend to do, we use prosthetic models for the distance shots. Mm -hmm. We use real babies. for, And some of the tricks are marvellous.
0: Well, I think this gives a new meaning to the expression stage mothers.
1: <laughs> and <laughs> they love it. The mums love it, you know. They're all there on set. They have a great day out. They're all these if the babies had too much, it doesn't want it. The mum's are always there. Well,
0: the babies and also the young children in many scenes. We all fall in love with these beautiful children.
1: Tom, my particular joy is I'm a dad of one. And he's 25 now. He's left the nest, you know. And the joy of spending 10 years on a program watching a fake family, we call them. I call them, I am fake dad to these kids. But Laura, who plays my wife and I, just adore these children. We adore them. We love them. We've watched them grow. You take little Alice, who plays Angela, she was a baby in arms in series four. When you see the tiny baby, that's Alice. And Alice has really grown up on screen. And little Max began as a Boy Scout. He's just left university, Max. He's now in this series in 11, which you guys are going to get soon. He's, um, he's a fully grown adult now. He's at medical school. But I cannot tell you the joy. It's like a parental joy in watching them each year. The children who play these characters growing up with us and coming back each year. You can develop relationships dramatically as man and wife and with the kids.
0: And of course, Sheila left the sisterhood to marry you. I was on the right road. Yes. I know you so little, but I couldn't be more certain.
1: I am completely certain. I don't even know your name. Sheila. Me to
0: start. We all want to be like Patrick and Sheila.
1: I love that character. And no single character in Call the Midwife has ever made such a radical journey and has become a mum. So she's, both, she's given birth, she's been in the convent side, and she's been in the nursing side. She's the only one. And it's a fantastic journey for her. But the lovely thing about playing out that relationship is it feels real. I always say about those two is, look, With drama, um, a lot of drama is about, and everyone, it's a truism to say drama is about conflict, and they have things which conflict them, and they are flawed in the sense, say, for instance, with Patrick. He's war-damaged, Patrick, so he can get sensitive and overworked and tired and stressed, and it can affect them, so he's not a perfect character. But the thing is, these two are ordinary good people to whom things happen. Mm-hmm. And it's very, very important to drama. There aren't enough dramas, in my opinion, where you just let a married couple be in a functioning marriage. I think there are more people out there who are basically like that, who are basically decent people to whom things happen, because that's life. But rather than serial killers, there's actually there's things that people can relate to and they go, no. I can have a disagreement like that or I can be sorry for my wife and want to care for her if she's in distress like this because you're ordinary folks, you know, you're trying to do your best and that's what they're trying to do.
0: I have to ask you about Judy Parfit and I have to ask you about Sister Monica Joan. This is a character that always takes us to almost another world, the way the character is written, the way it's
1: played, Talk to me about Sister Monica Joan. Judy Parfitt is one of the greatest treasures of our program. She was famous and brilliant before a lot of those kids on our show were even born. When Judy came along in the beginning, it was incredible for us. Sister Monica Joan is one of those unique and fantastic creations that I think is a wonderful symbiosis between Heidi the writer and Judy herself Mm. and it's very close, it's much closer than you think. Nobody can say those words that Judy says except Judy. Nobody knows what that unique eccentricity drives out, percolated through her age, her great reflections upon the world, her fragility, is a very unique thing. When Heidi and Judy get together, they navigate her personality and her disorders and her age in a very, very unique way that Heidi writes for Judy like no one writes for Judy. And Judy can speak Heidi's words like nobody can speak Heidi's words. And so in the end, Judy can reflect all that puckish, if you like, like the classic Shakespearean fool the wisdom that comes through, her changing moods, also the very personal side to Judy's life is that Judy lost her husband to dementia and it was a very, very tragic experience. And so Judy has navigated this part with Heidi in an understanding of the dance of the mind and how the mind can work through, how it might work through with this particular character. And it's true to Judy's genius that she's managed to speak for all of us. And when Sister Monica Joan closes in and becomes quiet and silent, which right to this series that she does, when she focuses on something, when she does speak, she speaks for everyone. And then when she's puckish and she goes, nobody can go there like Judy can go there. And Judy is one of the most funny and hilarious and sharp people. And one more thing to say about Judy is that... This is an 86 year old, I think. This is a woman immensely sharp of of fine standing. And we cherish this woman because her insights are magnificent. And our show prides itself on not only being a show which represents women, represents all people in our society, but represents age in all of its different states and makes people of all ages Valid, their skills treasured, and Judy sits in the middle of our production as an example there of what you can do when you bring all the fruits of a long, successful, brilliant career to bear on a very complex character.
0: Tell me a little bit more about producing under the pandemic. This had to have been extremely stressful to film. How did that work for you?
1: It's difficult to take you back to, I think it was August of 2020. We get called back and there was a sombre feeling to everything because at this time, doctors were catching COVID and dying. We didn't have the vaccine. We were sitting ducks. It was precarious. But when we got back, there was a relief. There was an idea that we might be able to do something. When we got there, so big were the conditions involved in our coming back to film at all. I think the protocol pages, the report pages stretched to about 89 pages of A4, so all of the strict rules that we had to undergo. We walked back onto set, and in our profession, you know, you, you get there and you, you get to rehearse your scenes as normal, and there's a COVID invigilator, they call them there, and says, well, that's great, guys, but you can't do it that way. <laughs> you you just cannot do it that way there's distancing there's problems that you've got so there was a feeling of of arriving saying we have to reinvent the whole way we do this drama Um, little examples you couldn't hold babies it's a risk you can't hold up this is called a midwife for heaven's sake you can't hold a baby but you know what we're a problem-solving industry Every single day when you film, you turn up and you're solving a hundred, 150 problems a day. An actor's sick, the weather's wrong, the camera's broken down. It it happens every single day and what we do in our profession is we moan a bit and then we say like what are we going to do? So here we were with a very specific set of problems to solve and just like with the babies, trying to film childbirth. A medical drama is a contact sport. You literally lay hands on people. So this is a problem if you can't do that. But we go, okay, bit by bit, we started to make it work. Bit by bit, we worked out what we could do and how we could do it, where we, and all the time tried to remember, we're here. We're in, we're in no danger. There's people looking after our health. There's people out there, and it sounds sanctimonious, but it was the reality, is that if we are playing midwives or doctors there were actual doctors out there actually getting in trouble and getting ill and getting sick and dying working 24-hour shifts you know and this suffused everything we did and all we just tried to do was to make it work and give people something to bring them all together with and that's what it was like and that's what it's been like but hey you know the other thing about call the midwife we've been banging on about vaccinations for a long <laughs> long time and one of the interesting things about the 60s 50s drama one of the most important things, was we work in an interesting way. We're not Downton in the sense that's a 20s drama. We're not a Victorian historical drama. We're a specifically very modern kind of historical drama where it's living memory for everyone. It's even living memory for me. But what was important about the 50s and 60s and the post-war era, we had a solid memory of the evils of disease. We could see it every day. My mum and dad could see these things. Measles was reality to my mum. She saw that it infected some kids. It gave one in 500 kids could get brain damage. One in a 1,000 kids will die, die dead. So measles was a real thing back then. And so it was much easier to get people to understand the benefits of vaccination, to have mass vaccination programs. They had antibiotics for the first time and they had vaccinations for the first time. They had the wonder of the polio vaccination. They had the fantastic story of, of, of eradicating smallpox, that American miracle. For the first time in human history in that time, eradicated the disease from the face of the planet. And so in that backdrop, we come to be doing this series under COVID, which was a very strange time because you're watching unfold a pandemic we haven't really experienced in the world since the great flu after the First World War. You're watching a very different society going through different reactions. But we knew what history had taught us and we knew how vaccines can work, how vaccines work really by everybody being cooperative it's not just a medical fix people have to cooperate with each other to protect those people who can't be vaccinated it's just the way it works now back in the 60s and the 50s this is our dramatic stamping ground and call the midwife. so the messages we give from that time are a lesson from history to have held up to people to say we got to today for a reason you got to the cdc for a reason we got there because we had to learn those lessons upon the bodies of people who died for centuries. We learned these lessons the hard way and you can have whatever attitude you want towards these lessons. That, you know, now if you, we live in an age of choice. Well, that's, that's kind of nice. That's a nice thing, but those people back then, those choices were a bit clearer to them because when my father and the people who died around him and my mother and the, the people who died around her, For those people who got sick with whooping cough or with diphtheria, that was a nasty business. And because they could see it, folks like us, we haven't seen that stuff for so many years. It seems like a distant dream. And it's a programme like ours that can say to people, this is not so far ago, but this is what they were doing and this is why they started doing this. This is why they did it. Season 11
0: is coming here very shortly. I believe it's going to be 1967
1: What can we be on the lookout for? It's the summer of love. You will see multicolored clothing. At one point, you see people dropping out. Not our central characters, I might add, (laughs) but you'll see that. I don't think that's giving much away. You see a very moving blast from the past in the East End relating to war experiences of those people who fled the Nazi scourges in the 40s because the East End became a melting pot for lots of different kinds of refugee. There was a wonderful, thriving Jewish community at that time, which is sort of, it separated and moved to different parts of London now. That was a very vibrant center of the Jewish community and indeed many other communities because what's happening in Britain is you're seeing those social changes and, and immigration as a force is continuing. And the East End has always been this drop-off zone, if you like. This melting pot. As Paris. indeed New yeah. York is, yeah. for, for yeah. all of these people. And so the East End itself is, is gradually changing. As the series progresses, there will be surprising twists and turns, okay. which will keep people on the edge of their seat, and I can say no more. Than okay.
0: I'm getting excited.
1: I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Changes will go right to the heart of Nanata's house, shall we say, oh. and they will infect all of its characters.
0: Already I'm getting a little nervous just hearing about that. You've been signed up to do several more seasons, but you don't know where your character is going and only Heidi really knows. Do you think that she's created it already in her mind?
1: That's a great question, Tom whether she's created something in her mind already. She doesn't work that way. And what's very interesting is things come into focus. What you're gonna see shortly is 1967. And as she started work now, as we speak today, Heidi is currently putting together the framework for 68. And so she will look at medical events, laws being passed in the country, social changes happening. She'll look at big ticket items. But you will also go through the medical officers' reports for that area of London. And what's fascinating about the British records on these things is there are all these wonderful statistics that were done every year, medical statistics, for each borough of the City of London, including Poplar. And so you would have these medical reports that sometimes they would just look like very dry sheets of statistics about, say, outbreaks of measles. But they'd also cover housing and social issues. There might be outbreaks of vermin and things. And in all of those dry statistics, stories are lurking. And around these reports, a wonderful multi-page report would be made narratively by the officer for health. And in those things, Heidi usually finds and picks out... She goes, oh, it might be just one line from this report. And she goes, oh, there was an outbreak of, or a suspected outbreak of smallpox. That's interesting. Let's uncover what this was about. And it builds into a story. She's in the process of doing that now, but she doesn't know exactly where, particularly the characters. She doesn't know. And it sort of comes into a gradual focus, which we're always the last to know about. But it's very interesting.
0: So tell me more, Stephen. What is that really like for you to be married to the show creator?
1: to work together, the actual mechanics of it, are very strange. So she has an office upstairs, I have an office downstairs, and I work on my script in the office, and she's not allowed to read in with me, because she's not going to hear how I play stuff, because that's not her business. And I'm not allowed to look over her shoulder upstairs and she's writing a script. But this really funny thing happens. When finally (laughs) I get the script, of one of Heidi's scripts. It comes from the production office. Although I could look on her computer, we never do that. So it comes from the production office with all the other actors getting messy. And Heidi always says, and I get really nervous because I know he's got the script now. So it turns away instantly from her being, no, you're not allowed to look, you're not allowed to know. So she then gets terrified. Oh, I wonder, will he like it? Will he not like it? Will he think it's terrible? Will he think it's good? So then what happens is I like (laughs) to go up to the bedroom and I like to read the script in the bedroom. So I go and read the book. Now I can hear her outside because I know she listens at the door. And what she's (laughs) listening for is one of two things. She wants to hear I laugh at the funny bits and she wants to hear if it moves me. And all too often, 40 minutes in, I go. I'll have tears running down my my cheeks, and I'll go. All right, you can come in. How how are you doing this to me? Why do you make me cry? And she and she always does the same thing. She goes, yes. If she knows she's make me cry, she knows it's going to be okay. You know, she's really pleased. Or if she hears me laughing, she go. Uh, what bit are you laughing at? I'll say, will you leave the bedroom? Go away, you're not supposed to be here. I just want to know what bit. Mm-hmm. So when it's production time, if you consider a factory, the analogy of a factory is, I'm your blue collar worker. As an actor, the actors go onto the sort of, the shop floor and they make the car, you know? In six weeks time for me, say, I'll go, and, I'll go and start filming and I do that thing. But Heidi's real role, is the bosses upstairs in the office above in the factory. Now, her role is the planning and the strategy and the making. And so we have this wonderful complimentary thing where she never ever comes on set. She always says, well, I'd be no use. I'd be a spare part. What do I need to be on set for? But what's so beautiful about being together in this is at the end of the day, Say, if I come home from filming, she can say, oh, I haven't seen those guys for ages. How's it going? How are they? She asks me. Because that visceral part of actually making it, she's not part of. But the other part, I, in return, I say, have you managed to solve that problem with that script? Are you going to be OK? Or, or you haven't managed to get a location that you wanted? Are you going to be all right with that? At the end of the day, we've got this family business. Whereas individuals, we put it away, we kind of go, phew, has another day done. How have we looked after the baby today? Have we been all right? Because it does feel, without too much of a pun, it does feel like your child, that you're looking after different aspects of that child. And because we both love the programme so much, it's a shared adventure. And what we've said is when it finally comes to an end, we're both aware that it will have been something that we've not We've not been full co-workers on in the same manner, but we've truly shared. For once in our life, we had a job. We were truly both spiritually up to our wasting involved. And it was about beautiful things that we really, really cared about. And we were really pleased about that.
0: Well... Stephen, this has just been so wonderful to talk with you about. Call the midwife. In addition to my professional role here in public television, my wife and I are are big fans, and we will be tuned in on Sunday, March 20th, here in America, to see the beginning of season eleven. And of course, the book I do want to mention, Call the Midwife, Labor of Love. I like to call it the encyclopedia of call. Of, of, it's call, very of, true. Of, of, of Call the Midwife. Thank you, Stephen.
1: We were ever so lucky to be on your show.
0: Thanks again to Jordan Lawrence of DKC, and of course, thanks to our audio engineer, Josh Broom, and our executive producer, Dana McBride, and thank you for listening, and be sure to be with us again for another edition of WNET Up Next. You're welcome to share your questions and comments with us at upnext at wnet.org, and of course, do become a subscriber. WNET Up Next is a presentation of the Design On Air Promotion Fundraising and Traffic Department of the WNET Group. I'm Tom Stewart.